Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of the My Love of Golf podcast. It's Roscoe here, your host, and thank you, as always, for tuning in, joining us, downloading, sharing, liking, subscribing, and just being part of the growing community of My Love of Golf podcast fans. I really do appreciate you. This week's episode is with a young man from Frankston, Victoria, who I would say, fairly, has made it to the big time in the world of his chosen profession, and that is the world of greenkeeping slash superintendenting, if there is such a word as superintendenting. Well, Stephen Britton is the director of grounds at the Chevy Chase Club over there in Maryland, USA. One of the big ones, guys. Yes, that is correct. Stephen's back catalogue of work includes his time at Royal Melbourne, includes the time working for the PGA Tour. So Stephen jumped on with us a couple of weeks ago, shared his thoughts on golf in America, golf at the Sandbelt, some of the things that uh, he's, his values, a little bit of, of insights into the people that he's, he's had the experience to uh, to get to know, and also a very unique story about tending the green at the White House of all places. Yes, a young man from Frankston sitting outside the Oval Office. You have to listen in to get that story right to the end. But Stephen Britton, follow him on Twitter. Thanks for listening. I do appreciate you. Enjoy this episode with Stephen Britton from the Chevy Chase Club in the USA. Stephen Britton in the USA. Welcome to the My Love of Golf podcast. How are you? Roscoe, how are you, mate? I'm very good. Very good. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to join me over there. And now, which state are we, are we in, Stephen, over there? Uh, so I live in Maryland, which is just right next to DC. I mean, I'm probably, like, I work, my course is four miles from the White House, and I live about 15 miles from the White House, so... In the introduction, I you know obviously announced you as uh, what are we the director of grounds at the Chevy Chase Country Club? Is that correct? Yep, Chevy Chase Club. Yep. And how long have you been at the Chevy Chase Club now? Uh, so I'm just about to start my third year in May. So mm. I've been there for two seasons now, and before that, I was at TPC Potomac, which is yeah. used to be the old TPC Avenel. So I was there for ten years, which is actually only five miles away from from Chevy Chase actually technically on the same road so I made the switch to, to Chevy Chase in 2019 had a great time at TPC and got to host five tournaments there which was fun I'm looking forward to diving into a little bit of all of that I guess what I'd like love to do today is is bring your insights in your world of agronomy uh, superintendent world you know greenkeeping world and and help the listeners understand a little bit more a little bit more about what you experience from your side of the fence. You know, I think a lot of the guys that listen to a lot of the podcasts, you know, appreciate great architecture. They appreciate great golf courses, whether they do or don't get to play on some of them. And anytime that you get to speak to someone who's got another, you know, several levels down of knowledge, it's always great to get their insights. And there's probably going to be a whole load of stuff that we can bounce around and talk about, but your insights uh, are going to be super valuable because certainly for me, you know, I, and my joke is my brother's the, the, the superintendent of the family, not me, um, you know, and he doesn't do that anymore. So I can't talk to him about it. So, okay. but certainly for me, I've had a, a little bit of an insight. Yeah. You know, I think as golfers, you know, we're always fascinated by the things that we can learn from people like yourself that have such a broad breadth of experience and yourself being on the other side of the world, you know, I think there's going to be um, a great load of information that you can bring to us. But firstly, before we start, you know, we've actually got quite a bit in, of connections in, in common, which uh, every time I get a message, there's always someone else that pops up saying, oh, I knew that guy. And uh, did you know this guy? And we're just sort of talking about it briefly, but your background in Australia, I'm a Cessnock boy. Cessnock has a bit of a bit of a rep. Are you a Frankston, are you a Frankston boy by, uh, by trade? I am. Yeah, I uh, born and bred, born in Frankston Hospital, bred Beautiful. in Frankston. Um, grew up in Coringal, about a mile from from the front gates of Peninsula. Yep. And uh, and, my, and then we moved over to uh, just off Golf Links Road, right by the Frankston Nine Hole Golf Course, which where my mum and dad still live today. So, from Frankston to Washington DC via uh, some great golf courses. Now, what was what was life like in, in, in Frankston growing up as a, as a young golfer for you? Um, it, it was great for me. I, I loved it. I, was, I worked at Peninsula, uh, was Peninsula 
golf and country club back then, but now it's Peninsula yep. Kingswood. Um, so I used to pick balls on the range at Peninsula when I was in high school, and I would clean clubs in in the bag room. And every now and then we would get a, we would caddy. It wasn't a lot, but every now and then there were caddy rounds back then. And if you remember the the way the old pro shop used to be in the locker room was across, they used to call it the breezeway. We would kind of sit there. There was myself and about four or five other guys my age, and and so that that was great. Like working back there then, the club was good enough to if you were working there, you could play there every now and then. And so I originally started playing golf at Centenary Park in. So for me, being able to play Peninsula every now and then when Centenary Park was your home club, you know, was was a huge treat because it was such a good golf course. Have you had the chance to get back and see Peninsula Kingswood as it is now? I have, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm good friends with Mike Cocking. And actually, I met Mike the first time when I was working at Peninsula. He was obviously a member there back then. And um, he was the guy that was always beating balls on the range over and over again and I was the one that was out there picking balls <laughs> and uh, so he and I would always chat and we became friends and so when I come home I'm lucky enough to go and play there and I've, I played there with Mike this time last year but there's still a lot of like Stewie Burns who works in the in the pro shop there that's who I worked for yeah. picking balls on the range back then so he's still there I still say hi to him so it's great I, I love coming back to Peninsula it's, I have such good memories of being there for me, it was, you know, in my golfing journey, you know, when I moved to Mount Eliza from uh, the city, I wasn't playing golf when I moved to Melbourne. Um, you know, it was something that I sort of left behind and came back to and I joined Mornington. You now you, you'll be familiar with Mornington and would have been yep. down there. Great club, great course. I still love going down there. It's still like a uh, home to me. But I had some friends that were members at PK and they would invite me down there. And to me, it was like another it was my first introduction into, you know, Melbourne golf, uh, big, you know, big time Melbourne golf, I guess, if you want to sort of refer to it as that for me. Um, and it really opened my eyes and it's changed a lot. So what was it like back then? But a lot of new members and a lot of guys that wouldn't remember PK in its original sort of form. But, you know, what are your early members of that that layout and the track in the early days? Um, I mean, it was it's always been a great club. And what's what's different for me now is, when I worked there, which was in the early 90s, um, the South course was always considered the really good course and I guess you could say the championship course, right? But in the North course was always kind of, you know, a step below the South course, which I think is how most people thought of it. But the land and the topography on the North course and the vegetation is so good out there now. And I mean, when I played there, I've played both of them now and, I almost like the North course better. I think the North course, North course is so good now, but it, it wasn't that way in the early nineties, or at least that's not how people kind of perceived them back then. And, you know, like, I guess the changes that Mike and uh, the, the guys at OCM have made, uh, I, I think it's obviously pretty well, well sort of broadcast now and everyone can you know, see it, you know, it's on this background here, not in a podcast, you'll see my background. That's uh second T uh, north looking down over the 17th and 16th south great little stretch of holes there uh, the, the big the big difference that i see here when i look at this photo that i'm sitting in front of as a background is that clearing out of the, a lot of the vegetation from from your perspective you know as a superintendent you know and then having an architectural influence uh, in, interest you know that clearing out of the vegetation that uh, the ocm guys did what what what's the point of that you know what happens around there with that i think what it seems to me like they did is they, they kind of highlighted the more the, the natural vegetation rather than the introduced stuff that was in there. Um, and then when they clear out all the trees and you expose these areas to where all this really nice native heath can come up. And I, I always knew it had a bit of heath back then, but when I go back now, I can't believe how much heath there is. I mean, it might, it might have a better, they might have better heath areas there than at Royal Melbourne or Kingston Heath or some of the other clubs up on up on towards the city. The, the vegetation at Peninsula is probably the best in the state. I, I think most people would agree, right? It's, yeah, it's it's a hard uh, case to argue against, but um, you're talking to someone who's probably obviously biased. But yeah, the sandbelt the sandbelt golf experience and 
and you know it and you know some of the people around the world you know reach out to me and say look i can't wait to get back on planes and, and get down there and see all of this stuff that you know you guys have access to in the sandbelt and really you know when you sit over there internationally and you think back about melbourne and, and you talk to you know i can't imagine the sort of plethora of people that you get to talk to you know when the when melbourne golf comes up how is it referred to oh it's really highly thought of i mean everybody over here anyone who hasn't been to the sandbelt they all want to go there and visit um and anyone who's been there is blown away by it so they it, it's held in really really high regard obviously it's it's really different to anything over here i mean not there's a few areas in america that remind you a little bit of the sandbelt like pinehurst i get asked a lot like what part of america reminds you of the sandbelt and the best i can kind of come up with is maybe pinehurst right um yeah. because it's very sandy um it does have a little bit similar vegetation even though there's a lot of pine trees but like the bunkers on number two on pinehurst number two they, they look similar they look like sandbelt bunkers you know um and it, it feels i've been lucky enough to go down there a lot and when i'm down there that playing there feels to me the closest to the sandbelt it's it's really firm and it's really sandy and it's open and some yeah. people say long island new york but i don't think long island's not like the sandbelt Let's talk about Long Island, Frankston, for a second. So was that the course that you joined, you know, after Centenary Park? Is that yep. where you sort of started to play your sort of, you know, big course sandbelt golf uh, there? Yeah, so I, I was at Centenary Park and I started to get a little bit better and take golf a little more serious. And I, so I joined Long Island. I played minors pennant there for a couple of years. We had a really good senior. The senior team was in Division One back then. and They were really, really good. In, and the minors were in Division Three, so I was lucky enough to play a couple of years of minor pennant there. And right around that time is when I got hired at Royal Melbourne. And I, it gets a little tougher when you're younger, you know, and you're working on a golf course every day during the week. It's hard to pick the clubs up on the weekend and go and play again. So I mm. kind of fizzled away from Long Island when I started working at Royal Melbourne. It's uh, well, it hasn't changed so much uh, architecturally, but you know, obviously, as you know, it's been. Um, taken over by the National, uh, which is another fine conglomeration of golf courses. And, you know, it's it's in fantastic condition uh, now. And, you know, the, the work that the National people do there um, have really lifted it up. And, you know, we've got an, an organisation with four golf courses in Melbourne, four really good golf courses. So uh, it's um, it's quite a strong facility now, uh, sitting yeah. right next door to, you know, Peninsula Kingswood. It was always... Um... I actually got my first golf lesson at Long Island. There was an old pro there. His name was Bill Swaby. And he was a close friend of my auntie and uncle and my mum and dad. And so when I first started playing golf, I actually went to Long Island. My mum would drop me off there before I was a member and I would get lessons from Bill Swaby. Mm -hmm. and, um, and my uncle was, was the bartender there for a long, long time. He was... Yeah. He was bartender at Long Island for I think I think more than twenty years. Um, everybody knew him. He was kind of like he was uh, he was one of those guys that looks like he was born to be a bartender. He, you'd walk in, he knew everybody's names, he knew everybody's drinks. He always had a funny joke to tell. So he was. So we, I've always had some connections to Long Island through my family. I'll be interested to you know pick your brains on you know some of the differences between. Australian golf and Australian golf club environments and, and you know you just sort of started to give us a good example there and and what you experienced in the states and we'll, we'll come back to that but but first you know we're talking about connections in common and, and being you know you're from Frankston I'm in Mount Eliza you know the adjoining suburbs and you know I'm not from there but um, that's where I live so we're close there but we've got another connection in common uh, a couple actually uh, your good mate Daniel Marshall. Yep I went to high school with Daniel Marshall uh, he and I were great mates all through high school we still are today we talk all the time good bloke marshy good footballer was a great footballer when we were in high school well he i asked him i reached out to him uh, late last night and I, I told him we were catching up and uh so daniel marshall just to um, backfill in uh, to the listeners you know he was a very very generous with his time in the early days of the my love of golf podcast he sat down with me and he was like maybe the second or third guest he obviously uh has a number of uh, things that he does but his main thing that we know him for is uh, being in charge of the two under brand uh, here in australia so he does a great job with uh, promoting men's undies um and they're yep. great product too not that this is sponsored but um daniel asked me he said uh he said he'd be chatting um ask about your illustrious uh, career playing back pocket for frankston east <laughs> that's funny i did i 
So Daniel, obviously, was a very good footballer. He got drafted for Carlton when, when we were finishing high school and he played Southern Stingrays. And I played a couple of years of junior football uh, at Frankston East down there yeah. in the back pocket, and I was awful. I was, football was not for me. But we always like to joke about it that, that I did play football for a couple of years and they were kind of poke fun at that. So, but yeah, I did. I played football for a couple of years down there at Frankston East. Yeah, so Marshall was pretty handy, and uh, I think injury got uh, Daniel. Sorry, um, I think injury got in in his way of uh, being very good um, on the footy field. Loves his golf, uh, very passionate, and it's great that uh, you know him and I know him, and uh, it's it's very good. Another little connection of the podcast was um, uh, Mitchell Driver, also been on the co- podcast of uh, in the My Love of Golf back in the early days. Yeah, did Mitchell? Did you mentor Mitchell at one stage there at TPC Potomac? Uh, so, yeah, Mitchell came over as part of the Ohio State program. Ohio State University runs an international uh, intern program for kids all over the world to come and work in America on golf courses. So lots of Aussies come over, lots of Brits come over, lots of Kiwis. And Mitchell came over for a season and, and was an intern for me at TPC Potomac. Um, he did a great job. He's very passionate about golf course architecture and very passionate about golf. I, uh, I've kept in contact with Mitchell and uh, his travels and my travels have brought us together. So uh, we bumped into each other walking into the President's Cup. We were literally, you know, on the Thursday of the President's Cup, I parked in some park, you know, that was way down on the east course there where, where you had to park. And we're just walking up the road uh, and there on the other side of the road, there's Mitchell. Oh, good day, mate. How are you going? Uh, and the previous time to that, we bumped into each other when he was overworking at Glen Eagles at the Solheim Cup. Oh, good day, mate. How are you going? Yeah, good. So uh, it was good to stay in. Their resume, Mitchell. He's worked, you know, he worked at St Andrews at the Old Course, and he's, yep. you know, worked at Congressional over here and TPC, and uh, yeah, he's got a, he's he's been to some good places. Finally, just on Australia, you know, you're when you left Australia, you left working, and I can see it on your hat there now. You left working at Royal Melbourne. Um, it's probably, you know, if, I, I could imagine if you had to write the bucket list of superintendents, places to work, if Royal Melbourne didn't finish, fit in that top sort of three, uh, I'm not sure where it would. But is that your entry into the world of greenkeeping slash superintendent world at Royal? Yeah, it was. Um, I, I, so when I, when I finished high school, I wanted to work in golf and obviously loved golf. And in Melbourne, I spent Heath and Royal Melbourne and Victoria and all the usual clubs. And that was, again, back in the 90s before there was email or anything like that. You actually wrote letters and I was looking for an apprenticeship in Jim Port, Royal Melbourne. Enough happened to contact me and put me on a trial basis. And then I started an apprenticeship there. I, I did my apprenticeship and my associate diploma there. Uh, so I was there for almost nine years. All, all in so yeah that was that was the first place that i that i worked as a greenkeeper and that was where i kind of learned everything i know and um kind of my first introduction to golden age architecture i think i would say as well i mean absolutely absolutely when you look at your time at, at royal you know i can imagine that what you learned there was and what you're able to take into your world of golf there now which is i can't even imagine is very different to royal but what are the key things you know, in terms of skills and attributes that you, you're able to, you know, really hold as part of your core craft that you learnt at Royal that you now, you know, refer to every day? Um, it's funny, like, I, I like to think of greenkeeping in Melbourne as the kind of minimal greenkeepers, I think, like minimal fertiliser, minimal water inputs. Obviously, it's very different to America. Everything here is sort of a, a little bit more over the top a lot of influence in terms of the, the courses have bigger grass areas. And so when I first came, when I first came to America, it was very different because the, the golf courses have you know rough everywhere. And um, there's a lot more fertilizer and a lot more water than what we would put out in Melbourne. And so it was very different to get exposed to that side of it. And, and the more years that I'm in America, I find myself kind of reverting back to, what we how we did things at Royal Melbourne and in terms of less fertilizer and less water and the way we prepared bunkers you know we would when I first came to America everybody would rake the bunkers all the way up to the bunker lip and 
when I first got my first superintendent's job, I would just smooth the bunker faces and rake the bottoms the same way we did on the sand belt. And um, that was quite unique. Like a lot of people over here hadn't, a lot of people, at least in my area, hadn't kind of seen that and were asking why. I would say, well, we want the faces to be firm. We want balls to roll to the bottom. We don't want them to hang up on the face. And it was just, at least in our area, it was just kind of the, the way you raked bunkers was to rake them all the way from edge to edge, you know? So, yeah, I've, I've been able to feel fortunate in that. I've been able to implement some some cool things from the sand belt to the courses, at least that I've worked at over here. For those that don't know the sand belt, and I think guys like you and I have just very easily understand you know what makes the sand belt the sand belt but just you know to identify what would you what would you say are the core things that identify the sand belt sort of genre um well obviously they're all they're all on sand so they so they drain very well i mean you would hope most sand belt courses always play firm and and they're not they're not on the soft side because because they're all sitting on sand they drain so well um and then it would be the bunkers and the way the bunkers are cut into the greens and cut into the edges, of the fairways and you know, how we mow everything to the edges of the bunkers and that you're able to build those bunkers there because of that sand, the sand locks together really well. And that's what helps the faces hold up. And that's what helps you get those really defined lips that they have on the sand belt. Those really sharp lips that everybody talks about. That's, it works so well there because that sand locks together so well. And that's hard to get in other parts of the world. Is does the sand base in the terrain, you know, just make it naturally easier for growing grass as opposed to a clay, a clay base, or is it more more in the the management of the water that makes it more difficult? You know, I'm not sure if that's the right way to ask that question, but I think you you get what I mean. Is it just easier to manage the the turf on sand or? It's just mainly the water and how it's retained. Um, I think it's easier to look after golf courses on sand because, you know, some, the worst thing for turf is it's is it sitting in water if it can't drain because um, that's when grasses will get diseases and roots get compromised. So, you know, anytime you can keep things dry and get water moving off the surfaces and draining away, that's always a good thing. Um, Melbourne has great weather too, and not just for not just for growing grass, but for playing golf, you know, it's, you know, you have cooch grass tees and fairways and, and bent grass screens and it, you kind of do really well there. Um, so very different to over here where I'm at, we have a, a tough climate in Washington, DC. It's actually considered one of the toughest climates in America because we have four very distinct seasons. We have a really cold winter. I'm looking at the window right now at three inches of snow. And we, we have a textbook spring, you know, flowers and the weather would be, you know, in the 20s, what I'm going to talk Celsius for you. So the weather would be in the 20s. And then in the summer, right around the 4th of July, it, it flips like a light switch and it goes really hot and humid, almost like Queensland weather. And, you know, it's up into the 90s and the humidity is really, really high. And we have that all the way until September. And then in September, we switch to the fall. We have beautiful falls or autumn in Washington, D.C. when the, the leaves change and they fall. And um, so it's it's really tough here because, like, for example, my golf course has all bent grass. We have bent grass tees, fairways and greens, and we have cool season roughs. So the whole golf course is cool season. So for that summertime, it's, it's really hard to – grow grass and get the golf course kind of through the summer in good condition because for that 90 days the grasses we have on the golf course you know they don't want to grow in that weather mm. um, you know whereas in melbourne you just kind of have good climate 12 months of the year and you can produce like really good conditions kind of all year so for you over there to get um you know that fescue to grow you know does that in the in the warmer uh season does that mean you have to pump it with a heap of water to just to keep it growing, keep it alive. So no, so no, not where I am. It's where I am. It's so humid. We, we right. average 40 inches of rain a year. Um, right. So we, at, we're double, we double at Melbourne's average rainfall. And, and that's because it's in the summertime, we'll get these afternoon thunderstorms that build up around three o'clock and 
they can dump rain on us. And the, and the worst situation is when it's 95 degrees and you get a thunderstorm pop up at three o'clock and it dumps down rain on us. And then the thunderstorm blows through and the sun comes back out and the temperature instantly goes up to, you know, 95 or 100. And that's when you can get turf boiling and wilting away. And it's when it gets really tough because we're on clay too. We're not on sand. So courses over here, at least in Washington, D.C., they don't drain anything like what you experience in Melbourne. Yeah, interesting. Now, yeah, you've travelled around the world you know, to um, you know, learn about your craft, and and you went up to, uh, you went over to the UK, um, went up to St Andrews, had a look around there, saw Scotland a little bit, which is obviously you know a part of the world that I'm very passionate about, being that both my wife and my family uh, are from there. I love playing golf on you know that type of surface. What did what did you what was your awakening like when you you know got to see and walk around the old course there and and see all of that? Uh, yeah, so I was. I was living in London for a year and I was uh, working on the grounds crew at Wimbledon and it was the, it was 2000. So they'd had the old course had the British open that year and I couldn't go obviously because we had the tennis tournament at Wimbledon. So it was too close to the event, but I got to go about three weeks after the British open and I caught the train from London all the way up to St. Andrews. And I spent three days there. I, I went there for three days and I couldn't play. I put my name in the lottery every day and never got my name called. And But I, I didn't even mind. I walked the course over and over and I visited some of the other ones in the area and I just kind of soaked up the town for a couple of days. I probably walked the course maybe seven or eight times while I was there taking photos. And I mean, it was amazing. It was like I've never seen anything like it really. I wish I could have played it, but I didn't get to play yeah, I only only had the privilege uh, once, and uh, yeah, it was a special day. And I think it's pretty obvious why it is so special. Um, you know, when you when you think about the old course as the, you know, the 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 birthplace of golf, so to speak, not not really, but we know, we know that down the road, um, in Leith at Leith Links was probably one of the identified real birthplaces of golf in in Scotland and therefore the world. But when you think about architecture and how it's evolved and, you know, with your knowledge and insights into architecture, you know, what do you see in contemporary golf architecture that, you know, you you like? And conversely, what are some of the things that, you know, maybe you don't agree with or don't like so much? Um, Yeah, so obviously starting at Royal Melbourne and growing up in Melbourne, I, I preferred the old golden age golf courses, obviously. Um, and I prefer their style of architecture, like width. But I love what, the, I think we're so lucky, the movement we're in right now in the last kind of 25 years is reverting back to copying what the old guys did and trying to build courses that look and play more like golden age courses do. Um, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not a fan of, I hate to say that to the, what you see a lot in America is the bunkers being out in the rough and being surrounded by rough and, and greens being surrounded by rough. And there is a definite, I do think there's a move away from that, right? It's not, obviously it's not every course is like that, but it's those courses that were built, um, you know, kind of in the sixties through the nineties, maybe that obviously a lot of that started happening over here. And so I, I've tried to implement that a little bit, in the courses I've worked at over here, the, the first course that I became a superintendent at over here was a Tom Fazio design, which would at, at the time had bunkers in the rough and it had rough all the way around the greens. And I converted five or six different greens there and I took the rough out around the greens and I put bent grass in around them the same way we kind of did at home. And I've done that to several greens at the current club that I'm at as well. And we, we started to do it a little bit at TPC too. Um, so I definitely prefer width in, in short grass rather than playing in rough. Um, so it, it's really good to see kind of everything shifting that direction, right? It, it seems to be what everyone is moving towards these days. You know, if you listen to, you know, Jeff and Jeff Ogilvie and, and Andy Johnson and, and those guys who you're you know, very close to and friends with, you know, when they talk about 
architecture and golf and then also with a view to setting it up for tournament golf you know they're and jeff unashamedly is firm and fast you know he, he would love to see all the courses you know on tour playing as firm and fast and we had a sort of brief little exchange there before you know there are some reasons why every course in the states on the pga tour can't be set up like that is you know is there anything that you can you know, what insights can you give us around that? You know, the reasons why, you know, and just it is what it is or we have to accept it or, you know, help us understand why we see some of the, the setups that we see and, and why there might be a different way or not a different way. Yeah. So it, it, there's a couple of pieces to that. Um, so we can take some of the courses recently where they've played on the West Coast. So the West Coast has really good golf weather uh, most of the year, um, you know, I know it rained at Torrey Pines this year, but it, usually it doesn't. And Pebble Beach had good weather this year. But, you know, it's tough. Like I see on Twitter every now and then, and especially some, from some of my mates back home, they'll, you know, let's, we could talk about Torrey Pines and Pebble Beach. And they would say, you know, why do they have so much rough? And why aren't they wider? Or why don't they have some kind of sandy waste? And why don't they kind of do more like what we do on the sand belt? And it's, it's tough there. Like those two courses, they're not on sand. They're on clay. I mean, on the Monterey Peninsula, I know Cypress Point and Monterey Peninsula Country Club are on sand, but up at Pebble Beach, that's that's pretty much on clay because it's up on a cliff. Same with Torrey Pines. So you can't, they can't just strip the grass and create all these sandy waste areas like you do in Melbourne because it's all clay. It just, when it would rain, it would turn into a muddy mess and it wouldn't play correctly and you don't get the vegetation growing in the sand that you do in the clay. So it's, it's harder than some people think, depending on where the courses are. Cause if they're on, if they're on clay, you just can't, you can't have some of that. Um, you know, I do agree with, could they have a little more short grass around the greens and maybe have the fairways wider? Like, yeah, sure. But in terms of creating sandy waste on some of those courses, it's, it's really tough to do. And, you know, on the PJ tour, I think, and it's probably easy for, easier for me to speak to it because of lots of mates still in Australia and follow them. We, you know, we talk back and forth on Twitter and they'll, I'll get messages like, oh, look how soft this course is playing and that course is playing. But I don't think they realise that for, the, for a really good part of the year, the PJ Tour plays their events in not the greatest areas for weather, right? I mean, the East Coast from May to October is, you know, warm and humid and there's thunderstorms all the time and so not only that we can take my my tournament for example the last two tournaments i hosted at tpc potomac right around july 4th weekend which is in the middle of the summer and it was 95 to 100 every day i think tiger woods said at one point it was the hottest round of golf he'd ever played so it's basically queensland weather is the best way i can explain it but it's queensland weather on bent grass, on, on cool season grasses. So just shutting the water off and really drying it out and getting it firm is really, really hard to do without you know, pushing it too far and almost losing everything. Um, I tried my best when I was at TPC Potomac. I tried to really push it to the end. And I feel like we, we provided some really good conditioning and we got some really good comments, but you know, that golf course, it was pretty ugly for a good few weeks after after the Quicken Loans. And so that's that's the tough balance for... I had this conversation with Jeff Ogilvy at Quicken Loans once. I said, it's so hard to just tip it on its edge for the tournament week because the club has probably sold sponsor outings the following week or charity tournaments. They've spent a lot of money. I mean, TPC Potomac, they would do a corporate outing there for 80,000, 90,000 US for one day and so if you if i go ahead and push the golf course to the edge and then if one of those corporate outings decides they don't want to play because i've really beat the golf course up and that's really tough for the club to take so it's i feel for the superintendents because it's just a really tough balance especially if you're on that when you're east coast and i mean even guys in the south they're 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 predominantly Bermuda grass golf courses or cooch grass golf courses and they have cooch greens and it's hard to get them at certain times of the year. It's really hard to get them firm and fast as well. So it's a really, it's a really tough balance 
to do. It's, it'd be interesting to sit down and try to look at the calendar and figure out a way to schedule the PJ tour to hit all the hot spots when the weather is perfect and you can really get them dry and firm. I don't know how you would do that. I'm sure sponsors and title sponsors and everything comes into play then, but most of them aren't played at the ideal time of year. And here's an example. I've got a friend over here who he's a superintendent at a course that hosts an annual tour event. I think he's hosted 16 now. I said to him a little while ago, I said, how many times do you think you've really hit the bullseye in terms of having the perfect weather for the event? And out of 16, he thought it was four. Yeah, right. Four events in 16 years where the, where the weather was really spot on to where they could provide a really good golf course. I mean, that's, that's nothing. That's not much. No, it's not, it's not a huge ratio when, you know, you, you're trying to create a product for, you know, a big organization, a player, a player led organization who, you know, probably have a fair degree of input into, you know, what they expect. And then guys like yourself, you know, have to work around all of these um, environmental conditions, which you have zero control over to, to build something that, you know, they want to see. And then therefore they hope that the fans want to see. And it just seems like there's this bit of a ongoing discussion. I think that's why we talked about that is, you know, between the fans on my side and, and what reality is. And I think you'd, you know, hopefully unpack that a little bit as to why we see some of the stuff that we see and, and, and why the, the setups are the, are the setups. Now, you, you mentioned TPs, TPC Potomac, you know, where you work for a number of years. You know, when you do work for a TPC, you know, you're effectively employed by the PGA Tour. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're a PGA Tour employee when you work at TPC. Yep. So, you know, how, how influential or were the organization over the setups? You know, what do they do they direct it or you know, is there a lot of bit of byplay, is there a little bit of argy bargy at some certain points of the, the juncture when you know you're in control of the course and you know prepping that product, but their influence and obviously looking after their players. I'm not sure if looking after the players is the right term, but I think you know what I mean. How how much byplay is happening there behind yeah. the scenes? Um, I mean, they have all the say almost, right? So right. when you're a TPC superintendent you'll have a regional agronomist. So the, the tour has uh, two groups of agronomists. They have competitions agronomy, which does, which does agronomy on the PG tour, champions tour and the corn fairy tour. And then they have a small group of agronomists who do, who work just on TPCs. And so you'll get allocated an agronomist for the year and he'll come in and make some visits and check on the golf course and, leading up to the tournament and it's and it, don't get me wrong it's a mutual partnership you, you both talk about what do we need to do between now and the event to get the rough to where it needs to be and get the fairways to where they need to be and what are we shooting for on the greens in terms of firmness and stint meter readings and uh, water management moisture levels and so when you when the tournament comes around advance week you'll have all the rules officials come in and there'll be one lead rules official that's going to kind of run your tournament and he'll pick two officials that'll do the setup one will do the setup on the front nine and one will do the setup on the back nine and those two will pick where they want t markers to be where they want pins to be whether they want a hole to be drivable or, or long or short or whatever they want it to be and they'll work with you they'll tell you hey i'm gonna play number seven drivable on thursday and i'm gonna make Number 11 is a par five and I want them to be able to go for it in two on Saturday. So I'm going to set the markers up here. And so that's, that's all on, on the rules staff in terms of whether cutting the cups. Agronomy are the ones that work on how firm and how fast we're going to have the greens. And so they're, they're really good guys and they're really fair guys. And obviously everybody works together, but they're in a difficult spot too, because they want, they want to produce the best conditions they can and they want the greens to be as firm and fast as they can, but they also need to do the right thing by the club. And, you know, they're, they're aware of not pushing it too far and putting the club in a difficult position. So the ideal situation is everybody working together and coming up with a plan and that's what you kind of work towards. But, you know, yeah, like in, 2017 we had the quicken loans at tpc potomac and we i feel like we got it really dry and firm considering we were in the middle of the summer but yeah that following year i i had to scale back a little bit because 
I'd probably pushed it a little far the year before and, you know, the club had a lot of corporate outings and a, a lot of charity events scheduled after the tournament. So, you know, for that quick and loans, yeah, I, I was kind of told, Hey, you know, we're going to, we're not going to push it as much as we did last year. We don't want to put the, the golf course on the edge as much as we did. So, mm. um, you don't, as a superintendent, you don't really have the final say, especially not when you're at a CPC. It's, but you hope it's collaborative and you're all working together. Now, I remember, um, you know, I played lucky enough to play at Royal just before the President's Cup as it was getting set up. You know, I was erecting a lot of the facilities around there and then I played it just after the President's Cup. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I played there before with a, a friend who's a member who was kind enough to take me on, you know, he was pointing out where, you know, the PGA Tour had been at and directed uh, the course to move some tees and to, to do a few things to, you know, tweak distance, for example, you know, push the tee back. And I've, I've got a very good pictorial member. I, I can't remember the holes exactly, but I think it's at the back of maybe the, uh, the where they put the new tee in, um, the par five that goes up over the hill to the to the right, you know, the bunkers in the oh, middle there. More west? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, you know, so that was an example. Uh, back over in the back corner where the, the old house used to be and they had to push a tee back there. Um, you know, but what amazed me was, A, how quick they get set up for, you know, that type of event. And then, you know, I played there after that in the February. So it was early February. So it's like a month after the the you know, biggest event that we had seen in Australia. You know, certainly there was more people walking over that than you I've ever seen. It bounced back really quickly. Is, is that pretty common for Royal? You know, because you hosted a lot of tour- tournaments there at your time at Royal. Does it bounce back really quickly down there or is it different? Yeah, from memory, it did in my time. I mean, a lot, and a lot of that goes to the grasses that are there and the, the time of year they host a tournament. Um, it was different for us over here. So Royal Melbourne has a lot of native areas in the rough that those structures probably wouldn't do too much damage to, maybe a little bit. And anywhere that they build a structure on top of pooch grass is probably going to rebound pretty easy. For us over here, we have tall fescue roughs and bent grass. So anywhere we build a structure on here, it's dead. When you take the structure down, it's it's dead as a doornail. And yeah. so we have to sod cut everything and, and restart it all. Um, so really, really different. I mean, it's it, it is a big production when when we would have events, we would start the build out about sixty days before the event. The PJ Tour usually has about three crews that kind of leapfrog around the country building and setting up right um so for example when they set up for my event and they tear down those guys are going to whatever course is hosting another event like three tournaments from now yeah right um so but the build out would, would slowly take about anywhere from 45 to 60 days and they tear them down a lot quicker the build the build out seems to go a lot slower than the tear down um the tear down would would take anywhere from 60 to 70 days before it was all done and then we'd have to come in and repair all the damage so the worst thing that could happen for us was if we got a lot of rain during that time those areas would get soft and the forklifts would come in and and all of that equipment and it would start rutting up areas and and tearing them up so it's it gets really expensive and it's it's a lot of work to to repair all that stuff to make it look like they haven't been there once everything's torn down yeah still sort of i guess on that tournament golf um sort of vibe but a little different tact is you know the distance debate and you know we've recently heard um uh webb simpson you know make some comments around you know protecting uh, distance and, and course and just change courses and just make make more dog legs and narrow the fairways and let the rough grow deeper and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, when you hear that sort of thing, yeah, what's your take on distance debate from your perspective? I mean, yeah, so I think it's fair to say I don't mind. I'm a rollback guy. Um, I mean, I think anyone that grew up playing golf in the early 90s and I didn't really play with the Simmons much, but I did play with those steel-headed tailor-made burners that were impossible to hit when you're a kid and so i would like to see them go back to a smaller headed clubs and a different ball for all the reasons that everybody's kind of talked about 
and you know, it's obviously more interesting and it's obviously gone a little sideways now. In terms of turf management, yeah, I mean, it's just not feasible. I have a friend of mine who he's a superintendent and he's renovating a golf course over here right now that is going to host major championships. And that course tipped out will play at 7,800 yards if they want it to for, for a major. I mean, that's, that's a massive golf course, right? Mm. And so with that comes more turf to look after, more areas to water, more, more areas to fertilize or not fertilize and more grass to cut. And it, yeah, it's just, it becomes a, a really big thing. And it's, it's tough. Like even when you go to Augusta to watch the masters, and they walk off the 10th green and they walk what seems to be 150 yards up the hill to the 11th tee and they hit their tee shot and they walk all the way back down the hill past the 10th green. It, it seems so disconnected to me. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm all for a rollback. I think it's, it's better for, for golf and it's better for turf management. It's better for the cost of the game and all of the reasons that everybody talks about. We uh, we talked off air, and you know that was one of the early connections you know we had through uh, when I played at Matt Mollica's Rollback Alliance Day uh, down at uh, Kingston Heath, which yeah, my uh, other co-host that uh, we do a little bit of uh, podcasting with, Rocket, he was the inaugural winner of the Rollback uh, Day down at Kingston Heath, and he proudly still maintains that trophy because we haven't been able to hold, host another one, which uh, I've been talking to Matt about, and I think huh. he's got some got some uh, you know maybe a new venue in mind, um, but. Uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting topic, and you know you just don't have to peel too far into the Twitter sphere to to see such a, a wide range of uh, different debates and, and thoughts, and some very well pointed and educated, and some you know less um, less well founded. But just yeah. to hear from your your perspective that you know you appreciate that you know what the courses yeah, are designed to be. When you, when you see, it's shocking, really, when you honestly when you see what Webb Simpson says and. Some of the other players and i know they're influenced by sponsors and the balls that they use and you would hope that they're being told to say that and then i truly deep down feel that i'm sure some of them do but um way i mean i watch golf well if they're playing a good golf course i watch golf every week if they're playing an average golf course i don't bother watch but mm. um it does get boring right like watching them just hit drive a wedge in every green or you know seeing it not hit an iron less than an eight iron at all it's just it's a little boring to watch on TV, that's for sure. So what are the events that are likely to get you to flick on, uh, you know, CBS or NBC or whatever whatever channel it is that you're watching over there? You know, what events, you know, probably take your fancy the most? So so Riviera this week will mm-hmm. be great. That, yep. It's a great golf course. And, it, and the superintendent there does a really good job and it always seems to be playing nice and firm. So that's always a good one to watch. The, the West Coast tournaments are usually always good ones to watch. I mean, stuff in Florida, probably not so much I'm going to watch. But obviously all the majors and and uh, if they're playing a really good golf course on the, on the East Coast, I'll always watch that. So, what about but, what about when yeah. we flick, flick across to Europe and, you know, what are some of your favourites across there? Yeah, I mean, obviously, well, I love the British Open. I've never worked a British Open and I would, I would love to. And I was talking to a couple of mates of mine um, Two good mates of mine are superintendents in New Zealand, Leo Barber at Paraparumu Beach and Brian Palmer's at Taraidi. And we have a group text and text almost every day. And we were all talking the other day about how great it would be to work at a British Open and you know get over there and just experience, especially at St Andrews. That would, that would be amazing. But obviously things being the way they are right now with COVID, who knows if that'll ever be able to happen, right? It was Imagine that. Imagine putting a super group together of, you know, you guys and, and heading across to an open tournament as, as volunteers and, you know, where I was going to go is these courses, you know, like when I was hanging out with Mitchell for the day at Glen Eagles, you know, they've got their core team, but, you know, that team expands quite dramatically uh, in preparation for the tournament. And a lot of people come in, in, in ground staff uh, numbers, come from all around the world to go and have that experience. Um, imagine, imagine putting a super group of you guys together. I think, I think that'd be quite special. Yeah, I mean, hey, it would be really fun. Um, I mean, it, you know, we so we at, at my last club, we had a full-time staff of close to 30 and we would bring in about 40 volunteers. So we would have a staff of 70 for our tournaments. Yeah. Um, 
when the volunteers come in, like all the hard work's kind of done well before that, right? The volunteers come in and just kind of help boost up the green mowing crews and bunker raking crews. They just help everything get done faster in the morning, really. Yeah, right. Um, all the all the good stuff's let kind of done leading up to it. But yeah, we really find a bunch of the ex Royal Melbourne guys have always talked about going back and volunteering for tournaments at Royal Melbourne and the guys that we all worked with in the back in the nineties and how fun that, that would be. Hopefully that will happen one day. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. I was going to ask, you know, talking about your core group of guys over there and when you think about daily life in the shed, you know, I'm not sure what the shed looks like, you know, like we're green keeping sheds uh, come in all shapes and forms and sizes. I know the one at PK we've got now and you would have seen it. It uh, probably deserves its own yeah. postcode, deserves its own postcode. You know, what's, what's yeah. life like in, you know, your side of the world in the shed uh, versus, you know, what you experienced here. Is there, is there a different culture? Is there a different vibe? Uh, you know, is there anything that stands out there? Um, so the, the group of superintendents in the DC area are really close. It's a really close knit group. Um, it's really great. I, I like it a lot. We quite often get together for dinners or lunches or whether it be beers after work and talk about the industry and talk turf and, um, I mean, I'm I'm lucky that where my golf course is, I have a lot of really good clubs that are really close by, you know, five, ten minutes drive away. And so we're always visiting each other's courses. And I, I really like that. that. The camaraderie over here is great. And, you know, there's no egos and everybody's here to help each other. And so if you have something on your golf course that you're kind of concerned about or you, you know, you might walk on a green one morning and you start to get a little worried about seeing something that you're not used to. It's, it's nothing to call a couple of mates down the street and say, Hey, have you got time to come over tomorrow and look at a couple of things with me and offer some advice. And, and everyone does that. Even guys that have been over here, that have been doing it a long, long time at some really big clubs, you know, everybody's there to kind of help each other and support each other. So- have you ever had to step in and help each other out? We all know that being golfers, that sometimes not everything goes perfect and perfect to plan uh, in, in your space. You know, my brother had some great stories about things, you know, whether it be um, irrigation that he installed, you know, bursting and, you know, all these different things that happen. But is there ever a time when you have to dig in and help each other out and, you know, you know your crew go and help the, the guys down the road because, you know, they've got to turn something around really quick? Um, yeah, I mean... Especially when it comes to tournaments, like when we would host tournaments, the local clubs would all send their their assistants over or interns over to help out. Um, and yeah, that, so I remember one of my when I was when I was an assistant superintendent at uh, Robert Trent Jones. The first club I worked at was Robert Trent Jones Golf Club. We used to host the Presidents Cup a long time ago in Virginia, and I got a I got a superintendent's job. Um, at a club that was at a, only about five miles away. And it was funny, I happened to get it in the middle of, of the season and the club had their member guest tournament, which was kind of the biggest member event of the year, um, about three weeks after I started. And, and the golf course needed a little bit of work. And my old boss was good enough to stand real over and... We did a bunch of bunch of bunker maintenance and got the bunkers looking good and um, so yeah, there's there's definitely there's definitely a lot of that goes on around here. Now I'm conscious of your time, but there are a couple of other little topics that I do want to discuss. And you've been pictured working alongside and giving some. I don't know. You can actually tell me what you're actually doing with him, but with uh, Zach Blair and, and the project that he's working on. What's uh, what's going on there with uh, with CB and the and the Buck Club? It looks pretty exciting. Yeah. So. Um, Zach and I became friends, obviously at TPC, because he would play in events at our at our place every year, and so uh, we became friends then. And we would talk a lot. Uh, we're obviously, we're into the same kind of things. And then, you know, I, I go and play. I'm lucky enough to go and play in his ringer tournament every year, which is a great time, and met really great people down there. And so, I guess we kind of got a bit of a group going of buddies that are all kind of into the same thing and everybody has something to do with golf in some way shape or another um and so yeah obviously zach's uh bought some land down there in south carolina and been well documented on twitter he's got tom doak and everybody involved and ty golby to 
to build the golf course. And so, yeah, just as a mate early on, I've been kind of helping him just talk about grasses and, and seams and different soil types and different things to look, after, look, look out for when it comes to building a golf course and, um, you know, what to look for when hiring a superintendent and whatnot. So, yeah, really just no different than if one of your mates kind of bought a golf course and you're just trying to offer some advice and help them make the right decisions so that everything goes smoothly for them. So, yeah, it's going to be really wait. I was lucky enough to go down there about a month ago and spend a couple of days with Zach and, and Dave and we walked the whole golf course and went through the routing and um, it's going to be really great. They've, that course is going to be great when they build it. Now, I've never, I don't know Zach Blair, I've never had uh, anything to do with him. I only get to see like, you know, most of us, you know, see from the outside, but he certainly looks like a, a very interesting and engaging character, very passionate about, you know, where golf is and where it needs to be and, and where, you know, what his vision is. So, um, yeah, what a what a great insight and experience to have, uh, you know, talking alongside him and being being Zach's mate, because uh, I think a lot of people do look up to him. And, you know, when you look at his golf as well, you know, that he was able to you know, bounce back and get back on the PGA Tour, it's just... Um, it's great. It's just great, and it's a, I find it a really yeah. in, interesting and inspiring story. Sorry, you're going to say? He, he's um, he's a really nice guy, and he just loves golf as much as all of us, and kind of likes all the same things we do, and different different courses and different architecture and different architects, and so um, yeah, he's really, really, really into it. And so we have some great conversations and about. You got a kind of a, that first couple of ringers ringer tournaments that he put together at Sweetens Cove. I went and played in some of those, and the really good camaraderie and all, everyone down there has all become close friends. And we have another one coming up here in May at uh, Mid Pines in Pinehurst, so that'll be fun to kind of see everybody again. I know a couple of guys that have uh, played there. So have you met Nash Pater, who used to work at Sweetens there? Uh, yeah. Okay. I thought I thought that's who you were talking about. I have met him. I have met him a couple of times at the at, at the ringer, yeah. Yeah, and Chris uh, Chris Day from uh, where's Chris? Chris is over in uh, Arizona. He I think he was at the last ringer. Chris uh, flew down to Australia for a weekend to come and play at the rollback. Can you believe it? Flew down, yeah. played twelve hole, twelve holes at KH, and then uh, played a bit of other golf, and then jumped back on a plane and went back home. Unbelievable. Yeah, we, we've been partnered together a couple of times in the ringer. We actually the last ringer that was at the Dorming Club. Chris and I have played together and we've become mates and we, we message back and forth about golf stuff as well. And um, I know he, he's a member at uh, PK, right? Yeah, we joined him up. I, I signed him in and uh, we got him down there for a day and had 36 and Mike Cocking came out and joined us for uh, walk the course and just you know talk Chris through a bit of that, which you know I was really appreciative that Mike was able to give up his time because you know, Chris, as you know, is a passionate guy about uh, architecture and you know, he's very knowledgeable. So it was great to do that. Yeah, no, but he's joined, uh, hasn't been able to fly down and play golf for a weekend, but I know when I talk to him, he's, he can't wait to get back down there. Um, another, yeah, we, just... we text about that every now and then, whenever there's like, whenever I see an Australian news outlet tweet out that whites are shut down or they're locking down even more, Chris and I kind of text back and forth and like, well, you might not be going back for a while. Yeah. Now, Speaking of uh, good friends, the fried egg and Andy Johnson, you know, how special a person is Andy Johnson? Once again, don't know him, never had any, any discussion or engagement with Andy, but, you know, listen to his podcast and, you know, probably learnt as much about anything in, in terms of golf and, you know, the, the area outside of where I work in golf um, through Andy's podcast. You know, you've been on that and, uh, you know, I've listened to, to that interview plus others. You know, if you have to sum up Andy, you know, he's doing a great job. What, how do you describe Andy? He's an interesting character. Yeah, like, so I, I, I really like Andy and we've been friends for a long time now. I first met Andy when there was a golf course in Richmond, Virginia called Belmont Golf Club. It's actually an old Tillinghast design and they played like the PGA Championship there in the 1940s, I think. Sam Sneed won it, like the only, the only major played in Virginia or something like that. And they were going to do a little bit of work there and Andy was going down to take a look at the golf course in... So we got in touch and I went down there and spent a day or two with Andy and some other guys and just talked about, you know, I offered my advice on agronomic things and grassing and how we could, the greens had really shrunken and how we could restore some of the greens back out to the bits that they were. And so we became friends kind of ever since then and we've always been in 
in touch and we play golf together and every now and then if he's on a road trip he'll give me a buzz and we just sit there and chat about golf and what's kind of going on so I really admire what he did because he was in he was in um he was in the IT world or um whatever his previous job was and he just you know he wasn't happy and he decided that this is what he wants to do and passion was golf and he kind of described it to me one day as he just jumped off the cliff and jumped into it and he resigned from his job and started up the fried egg and it took off and I mean look at him today he's really successful he's doing really really well and lots of listeners so I, I really admire what he's done it's great and I'm, again I find myself agreeing with everything he says we kind of we like the same things and yeah really passionate guy you know just lives in breathes it's inspiring to a lot of us you know who sort of dabble in this independent world of you know talking about golf and um you know, I, I look up to people like him from, from doing exactly that, you know, as you say, jumping off the cliff and just going, you know, if you've got to, if you've got to swim, you've got to get wet and you've got to dive in, you know, head first and tackle it. And, uh, he does that very well. And you can learn so much from listening to, to Andy, um, you know, the golf ball, that three part, and it wasn't Andy, but one of his guys you know, did almost that documentary style on the golf ball and the evolution of the golf ball, which, you know, I've played every, no, I haven't played every one of the golf balls that I talked about, but, you know, certainly played golf balls in two of those episodes, you know, from the, the 80s, 90s, and now 2000s. And, you know, you learn so much from that. And I've spoken to people that, you know, hadn't had the experience over, you know, back in the 80s of playing with those golf balls. And, you know, they came to me and said, yeah, I didn't had had no idea what the golf ball was actually like back then. But just to listen to that was, was uh, so insightful. Now, there was one story that you didn't share with, um, with Andy, which I'm going to ask you about because uh, you mentioned it. Tell us about the White House, if you're not going to break any security protocols. <laughs> no, we're fine. Um, the green's gone now, actually. I don't know if they'll put it back in, but um, when I... When I first came over and was working at Robert Trent Jones as an assistant, we there's a putting green at the White House. I think Eisenhower might have put it in. Um, what would that have been in the 40s, I guess? And he actually had Robert Trent Jones design it. So there was always a bit of a connection between the green and the club that I was at. And obviously the staff at the White House, the, the horticulture staff, they're not they're not trained to look after a bent grass golf green or anything with fine turf. They're just kind of lawn and plants and horticulture guys. So um, we would go down there periodically, uh, sometimes a couple of times a month or once a month. And we would look at the green and we would mow it and cut cups and we would spray it, fertilize it and make repairs to it if we had to. And, and we did that for a long time. It was a, yeah, really interesting thing. I didn't know that they were doing that when I first came over and they were like, hey, we need to pack up tomorrow. We're going to work at the White House. And I thought, oh, geez. And so, yeah, we've had some great times there. I remember one time we were aerating the green and George Bush was the president at the time and he, he came out with a walk. The green was right outside the Oval Office. I mean, if you're on the green, you can kind of see the president sitting at his desk in the Oval Office working. And um, one time we were aerating the green and George Bush came out of his office and walked over to us and had a chat to everybody and shook her hands and thanked us for looking after the green and asked us a lot of questions and so yeah it was it was really re interesting unfortunately the green's gone now i think i actually think donald trump got rid of the green which is surprising because he plays a lot of golf but um i'm sure they'll they'll put it back in one day because it was kind of historic it's been there for a long time president biden a golfer do you know he is, yeah. So yeah, okay. um, when, I was at, when I was at TPC, uh, Barack Obama would play there a lot um, and he would bring Biden with him to, to play with him, I mean, several times. So, yeah, he's and I think Biden came there a couple of times on his own. So, yeah, he's, he's definitely a golfer. Yeah, cool. Now, when you were, you know, aerating the green there at the back of the Oval Office and, you know, President Bush was sitting uh, at, the, at his table doing his work, you know, were there any instructions? Was it like the whole you know, Tom Cruise, you know, don't don't look, you know, don't maintain eye contact, you know, just look away? Or is there anything, any weird instructions like that? Or um, Not a little bit, not as much. Like we would get, I mean, we would pull in in a truck with fertilizer on it and everything, which is obviously yeah. a little nerve-wracking for them. So we would pull into a checkpoint and everyone would, in these Secret Service men would come over and security people would come over and inspect the truck and go over it all before we could drive it over to where the green was. Um, 
And then there was a lot of security standing there while we were working on the green. But it, I don't know, maybe it was just because it was a different time. It was a little more laid back than you'd think. I mean, there were lots of times we'd work on the green and one of the guys working there would say, hey, do you guys want to come for a tour around the house? And we'd go into the White House and he'd take us through all these different rooms and show us different historic things. And so, you know, that so that would have been 2003 to kind of 2006 time frame. So I don't know, maybe it was just, obviously it was a different world back then and maybe things were a little more laid back, but yeah, it was really interesting, really interesting doing that. To bring it all back to Frankston, could you ever imagine in your wildest dreams as a boy growing up in, in Frankston, Coringle, that you would be standing at the back of the Oval Office? It, when, you t- when you talk to your friends that you went to high school with, and hopefully you've still got you know, those friends and a lot of those relationships, yep. it must blow you away. If you really, you know, do you pinch yourself? I mean, yes. I, yeah, I've had some moments like that. I mean, so one time I, I did it and I asked them if my mum and dad could come with me. Um, and kind of just sit off to the side while I worked on the green. And then if we could go in and look around the White House and, and my mum and dad did. And my mum said that same thing. She said, you know, geez, here we are from, from Frankston and we're walking through the White House. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's funny, like that, right, golf, right? Like it's funny where golf, golf will take you and the people you meet and where you end up. It's, it's funny how that works sometimes, right? A hundred percent. I had a great chat with um, one of Melbourne's wonderful sports commentators the other night, Andy Ma, who's a friend. He's a fellow PK member. And, you know, it's one of the things we both lamented on is, is how privileged we are as, as golfers and, you know, we're very privileged to get it to play at the courses that we play at, but just more so the people that you meet and, and the places that it can take you and the introductions that it makes. And, and not through, you know, gaining any, anything personally, but just, how interesting people are, you know, like, and this chat that we've had today, and I thank you again, is, um, you know, an example of that, you know, like here we are so many inter interconnect, much interconnectedness, never met each other, but, um, you know, here we are, have, you know, able to spend an hour and or so, you know, chatting about both our passions of golf. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, you know, when I look back, it's funny how all the little things and how things kind of happen and the people you meet, I agree. It's all because of golf. It's all because of, I mean, for me, I, I sometimes laugh and I just think back to like, geez, started playing golf at Centenary Park and it kind of led to this, you know, if I had a not started playing golf as a junior, I probably wouldn't be working on a golf course today and don't know what I would be doing, right? So yep. it's just funny how it all connects together. Stephen, we could probably talk for another hour or so, but uh, I'm conscious of your time. I really do appreciate everything that you've been able to offer us today on the podcast. I probably think we'll just leave it at that. What do you reckon? Yep. No worries. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Ross. Uh, it's been great. No problems at all. Stephen, good luck. Keep doing the great work over there. Keep uh, spreading the good good word for Australian golf over there to all the people that you come across. And yeah, I look forward to seeing you down here at Peninsula Kingswood, Kingston Heath, Royal Melbourne, or wherever we get the opportunity to maybe go and have a game, maybe with uh, Mike Cocking and, uh, and do that, eh? Yeah, that would be great. I look forward to it. Can't wait. All right, mate. Thanks for that. I'll, uh, I'll see you next time. Thanks, Ross. Woo!